not the central theme of scripture. Instead, the covenants form the backbone of the Bible's meta narrative, and thus it is essential to put them together correctly in order to discern accurately the whole counsel of God. And that's from the book Kingdom Through Covenant. So before we look at the specific covenants, in the Old Testament, I just want to get a better understanding of this word, bereath. This is the Hebrew word on the left, bereath. It's the Hebrew word for covenant. It's actually used 274 times in the Old Testament. It comes from a Hebrew root word that means to cut. It also includes the idea of binding. So the, the covenant is that which binds together the parties. And our author defines this word bereath on page 56 of our study. There is another word, diatheke. That's the one on the right. That's a Greek word. It's used in the New Testament, specifically in our Hebrews passage we're going to look at today. Now, according to the Complete Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament, to set out in order, to dispose in a certain order, testament, covenant. In classical Greek, it always meant the disposition which a person makes of his property in prospect of death. For example, his testament. Hmm, what does that word remind you of? Will. Will. Or the formal, longer version, last will and testament is what we say today. Our last will and testament, okay? The Septuagint chose the Greek word diathique as rendering of bereath. Did you know that? In the Septuagint, it's not covenant, it's testament. Ultimately then, this comes um, from Bible Gateway Encyclopedia of the Bible Covenant Old Testament. Ultimately then, the bereath is, as the New Testament declares, a testament, the last will of the dying God, bequeathing an inheritance of righteousness to Israel. Now questions should be coming in your mind all the time. I write questions for Tyndale's, I, I teach by questions. So hopefully you're thinking right now, well then why wasn't testament used in the original Hebrew in the Old Testament instead of this word covenant, bereath? Well, three possible reasons. The first of which is that the idea of an inheritance was familiar in the Old Testament. You can find that in Genesis 27, Numbers 36. But this concept of a personal will was not common at all and didn't really come into play until the time of the Herods, which was much later. A second reason is the death of God's only son was inconceivable as it had not yet been revealed. Bible Gateway, it remained incomprehensible to Old Testament saints that to satisfy God, God's son must die, that men might inherit his divine life and so be with God. Its knowledge was far too seminal, both of the Trinity and of the incarnation and of the crucifixion followed by the resurrection. I'm reading a book right now, it's fascinating, and it takes place during the time of Jesus, and it's someone hearing his teaching and how strange it must have been to hear him teach. Um, and this is the same way. In the Old Testament times, this concept of, wait, God has a 
son who's gonna die on a cross that had not yet fully been revealed. Third, the third possible reason, and we need to go back to Jerome and to Martin Luther, so bear with me if you're not interested in history, think about your grocery list or something, but don't disturb your neighbor, okay? First, Jerome. In time, you know, the entire Bible had to be, was translated into Latin, the Vulgate, that's what that is. And Jerome was its translator, and he consistently rendered diatheque with the term testamentum throughout his New Testament, and he also used the word quite often in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, did you know it was Jerome who came up with Old Testament and New Testament? He's the one who gave us those two distinctions. Testament is what he used, Old Testament New Testament. Now Martin Luther comes along and he follows in Jerome's footsteps, if you will, bringing forward this idea of diathic, the last will and testament approach, but he does not use it blindly throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. In his German Bible, he moves back and forth and this is his overarching rule of translation. If it was the gospel promised of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, he would use the term bereath, but in German, bunt. If it was the gospel promise completed in the Christ who was already born, sacrificed, risen, and will become again, then he used the diathic testament approach. This is why Luther writes, and so that little word testament is a short summary of all God's wonders and grace fulfilled in Christ. Now there is a richness and a depth here just in the study of these translation issues. They're still not solved. Around your tables today, you're gonna run into, sometimes it's called testament, sometimes it's called covenant. If the scholars don't know, I don't pretend to know either, but I do learn something of my God in studying it this way. So that's how I want us to look at it today, okay? As this were his last will and testament of a dying God, okay? So we don't know that, but I wanna make sure we know two things really straight before we go any further. God's desire has not changed. God's desire has been from the beginning to have a personal love relationship with men and women. You can just put in the search op option in whatever app you use. You go to BibleGateway.com if you don't have one and just type in, they will be my people and I will be their God or I will be their God and they will be my people and see how many times it shows up. Did you know it's in Genesis? It's in Exodus, it's Leviticus. I just finished the Old Testament this morning. It's in all, almost every one of the prophets. And then it, the most beautiful thing of all is it is the climax for God. And it, we find it in Revelation in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, seven. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my children. This is what God longs for. And how does God accomplish this? The second thing I know, God's plan to accomplish this love relationship has not changed. Jesus has always been the plan. There was never a plan A and a plan B. Jesus was the plan. He was not shocked when Adam and Eve sinned. Oh, no. Now what are we going to do? Huddle up. 
It was never that way. Jesus was always the plan. How do I know this? Scripture tells me so. Let's look at just one verse in 1 Peter. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. So the testament that all of the covenants point to in the Old Testament point to this testament of God to his people made possible through the birth, the life, the death, and resurrection of his son Jesus. We're going to come back to this idea of testament when we get to the New Testament and look at our Hebrew scripture for today. But first, let's start at the very beginning. And some of you just thought, a very good place to start. How many, how many musical fans are there? Yeah, see, you couldn't help it, could you? I know I couldn't help it either just when I just said it. But that's where we're going to start, with Adam and Eve. With the very first covenant in scripture, Adamic covenant or Edenic covenant. And although the word covenant is not used, God clearly sees it as such. Look at Hosea. But like Adam, you broke my covenant. So God looked at it as though it were a covenant, even though the word was not used. And betrayed my trust. Well, what happened? What was the covenant? In Genesis, we learn that God creates everything, including man, and God gives him one rule to obey with consequences for disobedience. Remember, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. God then creates woman. Perhaps if he would have created, waited to tell the rule till woman was around. Um, no, I'm kidding. He did it exactly perfectly. I'm just saying, how many of you ask your husband, did they say anything? Are there, you know? I'm kidding, Lord Jesus. We know you created perfectly. So anyway, he creates woman. Creator God is in a perfect love relationship with man and with woman. He provides everything they could ever need. Life is perfect in the garden. And then Satan comes and he questions the very character of God, his goodness, and he questions the word of God, his command. Adam and Eve choose to believe the lie, and they follow Satan and disobey God. They're ashamed. They sow fig leaves together, and they hide from God. God comes to the garden and asks, where are you? Now, this is not because, like, God needed information. He was giving them a chance to respond. Consequences follow sin. Still true today, right? God provides clothing for them. Scripture says garments of skin. This is the first shedding of blood that the Bible records. Adam and Eve are banned from the garden. And I want us just to look at the words that God speaks to Satan in Genesis 3.15. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. If you have a life application Bible or any Bible that gives you notes below the scripture, take a look at what it says in Genesis 3.15. And you will find this is the first pointing, revealing of God's plan to defeat Satan and offer salvation to the world through his son, Jesus Christ. This is the first hint, hint of what's to come. Look at Galatians. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. 
And then Romans 5, 17 and 18. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Well, sin continues on planet Earth and spirals and multiplies just like sin still does today. God saw the extent of man's wickedness and scripture gives us insight into what sin does to God. Scripture tells us he was grieved and his heart was filled with pain. So God destroys the creation except for Noah, his family, seven of some kind of animals, two of some other kinds of animals, and the food that it's going to take to feed Noah and all the animals. All else is going underwater. God tells Noah to build a boat. We're going to see the boat next month. I'm so excited. If you have seen the boat, you can come tell me. Anybody in here seen the ark yet? Oh, you can tell me pointers of what we need to do while we're there. We're going to do that in the Creation Museum. I'm so excited. I can hardly stand it. Okay. All right. So Genesis 6 says, but I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. This is the first explicit mention of the word covenant in the Old Testament in scripture. Notice who takes the initiative here. I'll wait. God, right? It's not Noah that says, I heard a rumor there might be rain. Can you help me build something? No, not at all. It's God who takes the initiative in his covenant, okay? Noah obeys God. The flood comes. Noah's told you can now exit the boat. He gets out. He obeys. He builds an altar, and he sacrifices. Here we have the shedding of blood again. Burnt offerings of animals and birds. God responds to Noah's worship. This is just beautiful because we see God talking to himself. So again, we get this glimpse of how does God think? Look at this. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, except in Texas, it's only summer, day and night. Then God blesses Noah and his sons, and he gives them instructions, and he confirms his covenant with them in Genesis 9. God then gives the official sign of the covenant, which is what? The rainbow. Yes, and you can read about that in verse 17, a very public sign, visible for everyone to see up there in the still for us today. That is what the rainbow means, by the way, people. That's the meaning of the rainbow right there. God, yeah. Okay, God did that, right? Okay, all right. Let's just keep on going on that. Um, With whom did God make this covenant? Who is this covenant with? And? Everybody. It's with everybody. Look at it. With you and your descendants and with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Okay, so now the covenant is bigger, right? It's not just with Noah. He's actually making the covenant with the world. All right. 
Just didn't want us to miss that. Was there anything man or beast or earth had to do in this covenant? Nope, not a thing. They're shaking their heads. No, I took that as the answer. Everybody's glad you came back there on the back row. No, not a thing. As a matter of fact, God already knew. That, remember the verse we read? He already knew. Every thought is wicked from our birth. So he knew we're not going to change, but he was going to remain faithful. We see his character here, his mercy. That's what God is displaying here. He's withholding the destruction we deserve. And that's his mercy. And who initiated this covenant? Our faithful, merciful God. All right, the next major covenant in our backbone building is the Abrahamic covenant. This is years after the flood. The people are rebelling against God. They build the Tower of Babel. God confuses their languages. The people disperse. And then we have the Abrahamic covenant. Who initiates the covenant with Abraham? God initiates the covenant. God chooses one man as the instrument of his blessing to the entire world. You read about this in Genesis 15. There's an explicit reference to God's covenant with Abraham. And we read that in our lesson in day three of this week. So I'm, and we, you even answered a few questions on it. So I'm just going to make a, a couple of comments. If you want a quick summary of the Abraham, of Abraham, period, Look in the New Testament. Stephen has cliff notes there for us in Acts 7, 1 through 8. I want us to back up a, just a second on this, though, because our question for this week in our study guide dealt mainly with the land part of the promise, but there was more to the covenant than the land. And I, I, we just can't miss this because there's a direct link to Jesus if we'll look at the threefold promise, all right? So we're going to back up and look at Genesis 12, one through three. In this passage, again, you looked at Genesis 15. So this is a, just a few chapters earlier. God tells Abram, get up and go to the land that God will show him. Then God makes three promises to Abram. He'll be made into a great nation. The nation will be led into the promised land. And then through Abraham, all the people of the earth will be blessed. Here we have a further revelation of God's plan A, Jesus. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. The Abrahamic covenant points forward to the new covenant by promising a seed that would bring blessing to the whole earth and by making of Abram, who will then be called Abraham, the father of those who share his saving faith. That argument is worked out beautifully for us in Romans 4. It's one of the things I had to cut to get down to 30 minutes today. So I'm just begging, asking, pleading, read Romans 4 on your own. Romans 4. It's on your handout for you. When you read Romans 4, you are going to see clearly that faith is the key. As a matter of fact, verse 16 actually says those words, faith is the key. For Abraham then and for us today. Now in Genesis 15, this is the, the scripture you read. Do you remember what did the smoking fire pot and blazing torch represent? Remember that pass between the divided sacrifice? What did it represent? God. I should have asked you who did it represent. I wasn't trying to trick you. God was your answer to that in your book. This is a custom that's referred to in Jeremiah. I don't want us to miss this. Because you have broken the term, oh, a little context here. God is talking through the prophet Jeremiah, and the context is the oath of freeing Hebrew slaves, okay? 
Because you have broken the terms of our covenant, I will cut you apart just as you cut apart the calf when you walked between its halves to solemnize your vows. Who is speaking here? God through Jeremiah. Who broke the covenant? The people did, right? The people broke the covenant. Who cut the calf apart? The people cut the calf apart. Who walked between its halves to solemnize their vows? Was it God? No, it was the people. And that is commonly how it was done. The action symbolized the judgment on anyone who broke the contact, the contract. Now, consider what is happening in Genesis 15. Do you remember who passed between the pieces of the sacrificed animals? God, I will wait you out, people, and we will go past 10, okay? <laughs> if you don't snap to it. God does. God walks through. God, the sovereign, who will be faithful to the covenant. God takes on the punishment for the potential and sure unfaithfulness of Abraham. Why? Because Abraham's just a man, so he is going to sin. Do you see our faithful, merciful God taking our punishment? Through whom does God take our punishment? Jesus. Yes, here the son is again in the Old Testament covenant. In Genesis 17, the Abrahamic covenant is sealed by what sign? Anybody know? Circumcision, I'll give you that one because you didn't study that. But circumcision is the sign of that covenant. And again, Romans 4 fleshes that out for us. Oh, pun totally intended on that. But you read Romans 4, and it will explain what the circumcision means and what it means for us today. Then in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham's faith and his obedience. God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and sacrifice him to me. Scripture tells us, quote, the next morning Abraham got up early and did exactly as God commanded. At the moment Abraham's knife is lifted and ready to make the downward killing stroke, God uses an angel. And I love this in Scripture because it says the shouting voice of an angel. He wanted to make sure that Abraham heard his voice and the angel stops him. God provides a ram. Abraham sacrifices the ram. There we have the shedding of blood again. And after the sacrifice, the voice of the angel speaks again in Genesis 22, 16 through 18. This is what the Lord says. Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will. And then he continues to confirm the covenant he had already given. Again, please read Romans chapter 4. There's such, it's such a clear picture of the link between the part of works, law, circumcision, religion, and faith. It's all right there in Romans 4 for you. Okay, have you ever wondered why Abraham? Why did he pick Abraham? God actually answers that question for us in Genesis 18, 19. I have uh, the context here. This is when Abraham is actually interceding for Sodom and God is speaking 
And he says, I have singled him, Abraham, out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. I want us to read this in combination with what Scripture tells us in Romans. In Romans 4, if his good deeds, this is talking about Abraham, if Abraham's good deeds had made Abraham acceptable to God, Abraham would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scripture tells us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. We almost need to read Romans 4 first to better understand Genesis 18 to answer why Abraham. It was not Abraham's goodness his good deeds, his obedience that made him acceptable. It was his faith. Faith is the key. Again, read Romans 4. This is applicable for Abraham, and it's still true for us today. Look at Romans 4, 23 through 5, 2. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit, too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He's handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. That is the gospel, ladies. That is the new covenant right there. That's the gospel. Now, we move on to the Sinaitic covenant or Mosaic covenant. Moses, by the way, was the first person with a tablet downloading data from the cloud, right? You can use that tonight at dinner. Yeah, it, put it in the form of a riddle. It'll be fun. All right, since three of our di five days of study had to do with this covenant, we're just going to do a fast, really quick group quiz. You ready? Who initiated the covenant? God. Who was the mediator or the spokesman, if you will? Moses. With whom was the covenant made? Israel. The people of Israel, okay? So at, at that time, there were more than 2 million of the Israelites, and that's who this covenant is made with. Was it a conditional or an unconditional covenant? Conditional. You answered that question. If you don't remember what you said, you answered it on page 58. Okay, and if you answered it wrong, the answer is it was conditional. God spells out blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Okay, Israel accepts the Lord's covenant. Moses offers sacrifices to God. Here we have the shedding of blood again. And Moses actually sprinkles the blood on the altar that Moses had built and on the people themselves. So I'm standing there and now I have blood sprinkled on me. And Moses says these words in Exodus 24, 8. This blood on me confirms the covenant the Lord has made with you in giving you these laws. Have you ever wondered why God chose Israel? Why are the Jews the chosen people? Wasn't it Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof? Wasn't it? That said, um, I know, I know, we're your chosen people, but once in a while, can you choose somebody else? Seriously, why did God choose Israel? God answers this one for us, and Tevya, in Deuteronomy 7. 
For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on the earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. And he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. We not only get the answer to the question of why Israel, but we learn about our God, the author of his word. Don't miss it. Why did he choose Israel? Because of Israel? Nope. Because of God. Because of God's love, his grace, his faithfulness. The old covenant was the formal institution of a relationship between God and his chosen people Israel and laid down the foundations of Judaism that continue into our modern world. Now, in addition, the old covenant, I'm sure we did not miss this in our study this week, shows us our need for a better, a new way, the new covenant, right? From the tabernacle to every piece in it, beginning with the Ark of the Covenant, which, by the way, I don't know who won that lecture, but that was one of my favorite ones to give for the first time years ago. The pieces in the tabernacle, you're going to love that part. Okay, who won that? Who's doing that? Oh, you get to do that. Okay, lucky you. All right, um, in the tabernacle, beginning with the Ark of the Covenant, and then we go to the offerings, the sacrificial system, to the priesthood itself. It all points to Jesus. All of it to Jesus. Every single time, every comparison, you will see that Jesus is better. The final major covenant between the New Covenant or Testament is the Davidic Covenant. Eventually, the Israelites do enter Canaan, and there are about four centuries of sin. We'll sum that up like that. The people disobey the commands in the Mosaic Covenant. Then come the judges and the prophets and the beginning of the kings with Saul. And midway in the reign of David, about 995 B.C., God makes the Davidic covenant. And the key verse of that covenant is in 2 Samuel 7. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. The Davidic covenant reached fulfillment in Jesus. Look at Luke, New Testament 1. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And then the very first verse of the New Testament. Whoops, sorry. Matthew 1.1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. There's two of our covenants right there. Okay. God used the prophet Nathan as his spokesman to declare the Davidic covenant, and God used the prophets to declare the new covenant or testament that was coming. In day five, page 73 of our workbooks this week, we looked at the new covenant in Hebrews 8 through 10. Our passage in Hebrews 8 is actually quoting one of the prophets, Jeremiah. The new covenant would be marked by an act of God within human hearts. This is a radical spiritual transformation, which the old covenant was never able to accomplish, ever. 
At the Last Supper, Jesus declared to his disciples, Luke 22:20. 20. This is the King James Version. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Jesus lived perfectly, sinlessly, died a sacrificial death, shed his own blood on the cross, was raised again in three days, and is coming again. The covenant was complete. The testament is fulfilled. He is the new covenant, the better covenant. Considering all we've talked about this morning now, let's look at Hebrews 9. I have two different versions up here, King James and the NIV. I mean, I think I'll read the King James. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it's of no strength at all while the testator liveth. In this passage, I want us to look at the five major aspects, even today, of a last will and testament. Okay, there are five of them. There is the testator, the heir or heirs, the method of effectuation, the conditions, and the inheritance. Now, we're going to use this one passage in Hebrews to talk about each one of these. Who is the testator? It is God, the designator, not man, the beneficiary who makes the testament. Our, Ken and my heirs did not sit down with us and do anything. We sat down with the lawyer and did this, okay? God is the one, not man, the beneficiary who makes the testament. Who initiated all the covenants in the Old Testament? I'll wait. Who initiated all the covenants in the Old Testament? every single one and it doesn't change in the new testament it's god the initiator there's no bargaining table it's not some covenant that we'd agreed to as if i'm some equal with god that we sit down and both sign on the dotted line that's not what this is which makes it even more beautiful who are the heirs the heirs are those who are called and i've tried to highlight it in both versions there those who are called. In our study this week, we looked in Scripture and saw clearly that God calls both the Jews and the Gentiles. That's everyone, by the way. You're either a Jew or a Gentile, which probably brought to mind immediately one of the most common memorized verses in Scripture, right? That's the whosoever in John 3:16. What is the method of effectuation, the act of implementing or carrying into effect? A feature that is by nature essential to the effectuation of a testament is the death of the testator. Ken and I have to die for this to happen. Do you see the beauty of what's happening here? Who died? Jesus died. So that the will becomes effective. The testament becomes effective through his death. The conditions, referring to the conditions by which the heir qualifies for the gift or gracious bequeath. By its very definition, a gift is unearned. Let's look at Romans 3. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The better, uh, to better explain this free gift of God... And totally clarified that no work whatsoever on my part qualifies or disqualifies me from being the heir to the testament. 
you can look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, 8 and 9. You'll have to read that on your own. We do have to stop just for a minute and don't miss his character, his mercy, his love, his grace. It's all in this verse. It says he is rich in mercy. He loves you so much and offers to save you by his grace. Is there a qualifying feature of any kind on my part? Romans 10 makes this very clear. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. There's the reference to the old covenant, by the way. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Skipping down, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Skipping down, Jews and Gentiles are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I place my faith in God's free gift of salvation through the perfect life, sacrificial death, and resurrection of his one and only beloved son. He gave his life for me, so I want to live my life for him. I want to know him more, and as I know him more, I love him more, and I obey him more. My obedience flows from my love for him, but in no way is the qualifying in the will. In no way is it the qualifying. Read James 2, 14 through 26. That's on your handout for a clear picture of saving faith, faith and the link and order of faith and actions or work. Oh, there's definitely a link um, so you can read that on your own, James 2. The fifth aspect of the testamental arrangement is the inheritance. The inheritance, salvation, freedom from sin, means uh, reconciliation with the holy God, me and God in right relationship. What kind of inheritance? It's an eternal inheritance, John three sixteen. Say it with me in whatever version you might know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. As if this were not enough, we have what is common in God's Old Testament covenants. He gives us a, a confirmatory sign, some visible demonstration of God's ability to perform what he has promised. And I knew we would run out of time on this, so that's why I gave you all the answers on your handout. The visible sign is the empty tomb, Jesus' resurrection. So if you'll just fill that in on sign, I gave you the th three scriptures you can look at there to look into that, what does that sign actually mean? It means it's a pledge of his deity, of justification, of immortality, and resurrection. So what now what? On your handout, God is a covenant-making God who has declared his testament. God takes the initiative and pursues me in a loving relationship. God's love, mercy, and grace are the basis of his testament. God fulfills his testament for me through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. God is faithful and leaves the decision of faith to me. And the most important question I answer in this life, I answer with my life. And he asks the same of you. What decision have I made? Am I Am I in a personal loving relationship with God through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ? If not, why not? Why not? I will stand before him someday and all my lips can repeat is Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I'm gonna ask that you just set your books to the side and stand up for the closing. Romans 5, 6 through 11 
You can just bow your heads, I'll read it. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright, would, would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Amen. Thank you, ladies. You can go.